Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that reading. I appreciate the passion and with uh, Asabari as well with the prayer. And uh, appreciate you guys. Uh, thanks for all the, um, the work that's going into the parsonage. We were there um, last Sunday and it's really coming out very beautiful. And we really do appreciate uh, the work and a thank ahead of time for anyone that volunteers to help with the cleanup. Um, we know it's a lot of work. Uh, but again, we, we do appreciate it. Um, so last week, we kind of built a foundation for our study in the book of Philippians. And uh, this week, we're only going to get through two verses. And that's not going to be typical. Um, I think I have about nine sermons after this. But we want to still, I think, paint a bit of a, a background uh, to help us. I think it's very important for us to lay a foundation. And there's some things, I think that are spoken in verses 1 to 2 um, that are very important for the foundation of the book but also for the foundation of the church and for um, our walk with God. So uh, let me just give you a bit of an introduction again and uh, we'll have a, I'll give you the points and we'll have a word of prayer. So the, the church at Philippi was planning on second, uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And we read that in Acts chapter 16. In fact, he, he uh, spent some time in a prison, him, him and Silas, um, because of their work there in Philippi. Um, he visited, revisited Philippi on his third missionary journey. And you could read that in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. So he planted it, he revisited on his third missionary journey. And then he would write this epistle. Remember, this epistle was written from house arrest. He was in prison in Acts chapter 28. At the end of that chapter, we see that Paul was under um, house arrest. And he writes this book while he's in house arrest for about two years. And uh, it's written about nine years after he started. So somewhere around um, 60 AD is when he writes um, this epistle. Now, the title of my message today is The Local Church is Close to the Heart of God. God's plan in the New Testament very clearly laid out is the local church. God's plan for you in the New Testament is very clearly laid out. You are to not only attend a local church, but eventually, for those that maybe have been here for a short period of time, become a member of a local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man that was involved with habitual uh, sexual sin, they were told to cast him out of the church. That doesn't mean you physically grab the guy and throw him out the doors, right? Because the church is not a building. It means that he was no longer to be a member until he got himself ready. He got himself ready with God. So what is implied in the epistles of the New Testament 
of God Almighty, the book that God has penned, is for us to be part of a local church. That's God's will. Very clear. And we'll see some of that today. Now, a couple things laid out. Number one, we see that Paul is concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church at Philippi. Why? Because the church is dear to God's heart. Second thing we see today, the church is to be a light to the world. In the Old Testament, God was to use Israel to be a light to the world. In the New Testament, God's plan is to, live, to use the church, which is comprised of born-again members, to be a light in a locality where, it's, where it uh, exists. And number three, leaders are given to help the church grow. Therefore, members are to um, participate and to adhere and to um, benefit from the leaders that God gives to the church. So three very simple points today, but I think very important points. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this text. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, the word of God that is spoken today is true. It is penned by men, but under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God used their personalities and backgrounds, but the words that were written were written and preserved for us for our benefits and are your words. Therefore, we can confidently rely and trust and live by the infallible word of God. Father, I pray as I speak today on this important topic of the church, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ gave himself for the church. That's how dear it is to your heart. That you will speak to us, that you will encourage us, and that you will challenge us. The Spirit of God is in each of us as believers, and so we know that he will personally apply this message to each of us today. And we thank you, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The local church is close to the heart of God, and Paul, as one who went out and was commissioned to plant churches, which we'll see later, is a fulfillment of the Great Commission, planting churches. He was concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church at Philippi. Why? Because the local church is close to the heart of God. Now, look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Bondservants is doulos. You could, you could um, interpret that as slaves. Paul and Timothy and anyone that trusts Christ as Savior in a sense is a slave to the master, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, as the master and as the Lord, that you are to yield 
your lives, and we're to yield our wills to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul recognized that. Now, why was Timothy mentioned here? Because Timothy was not with Paul in prison. I don't believe he was anyway. Because if I look down in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, now notice it. But I want you to know, brethren, not we, that the things which happened to me, not me, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, uh, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that, again, my, not our, change in Christ. I would think if Timothy was in prison, Paul would have said, we. But he doesn't. It's not Timothy with him in prison. So then why does Paul mention Timothy? Well, let's go to chapter 2 of Philippians. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. Again, the idea here is the church is close to the heart of God. And we see in point 1 that Paul is concerned about the spiritual well-being. By the way, that's the, the prominent thing. The spiritual well-being and progress of the believers of Philippi that comprise the church. Now look at chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now Timothy was probably in close proximity to Paul. The fact that he was going to send them. Okay? Why? Why was he sending them? That I also may be encouraged when I know your state. You see, Paul was concerned about the people of Philippi. You recall that Epaphrodites had came and given Paul a gift, a monetary gift. And Epaphrodites, when he came and gave Paul a monetary gift, he probably gave him an update. And so now Paul, who planted that church, is concerned about the people of Philippi. So I think the idea is that Timothy is going to go back to Philippi and he's going to return with a report. Unlike the Paphrodites who would go back to Philippi and stay there. He wouldn't give Paul. So that's why Timothy is probably mentioned um, because he's sending him. Now look at verse 2. For I have, now again, look at Paul's concern for this local church, his concern for the church. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. See, Paul wasn't going to just send anybody. This wasn't just like some social gathering, hey, what's going on, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. Paul was concerned about where they were spiritually with God. And so I'm going to send my best man to go back and then minister to you and then come back to me because I need to know what's going on. Why? Because the local church is dear to my heart. You see, Paul didn't just plant churches and say, whatever. Because the churches are dear to the heart of God. And then he says in verse 22, another reason why I think he sent Timothy, but you know his proven character. They knew him. That helps when you know somebody. Hey, we know Timothy. We know this is a man of God. We know when he comes, he's going to minister to us. So we look forward to receiving him. 
that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. So again, we see point one, that Paul is concerned about the spiritual well-being at Philippi. And I want to go back up to chapter one, verses nine through 11. Again, reinforce that point. There are things we pray for sickness and health and jobs, and those things are all important, and we ought to pray for that. But you'll find in this book in Philippi, Paul's focus is on the spiritual well-being, because that's the most important thing. Look at chapter 1, verse 9, and see again how Paul's focus is on the spiritual well-being. And this I pray, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And I'll talk about that more next week. But that word knowledge is gnosko, which is an experiential knowledge. Okay? Now you could say this. And this I pray that your love for God and for each other may abound still more and more in your in your experiential knowledge with God, building a relationship with God, and then others, and all discernment, which probably isn't a great translation. I think it should, it's more uh, perception to understand the things of God. Now, verse 10, that you may approve, that means test with the idea of, of seeing what's right and what's not right, the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That speaks of Christ's return. Again, the point is, I am concerned about your spiritual well-being and your spiritual growth. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That's why we read this morning, had Brother Mark read the fruits of the Spirit. And then it says, which are by Jesus Christ. The fruits of the Spirit are not in the flesh and not in our own strength, but when we die to ourselves, we yield to Christ and we abide in Christ, then Christ lives in us and the fruits are evident. So Paul's concern is for the church and specifically for their spiritual well-being. Why? Because God's heart is for the church. He's concerned about the local churches. Number two, the church is to be a light. Get that in verse 1. There's a lot packed in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, and I mentioned this, bond servants, doulos, slaves of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we listen, we, we hear that and say, ooh, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, let me say this. You are either a servant of sin or a servant of God, and there's no in-between. That's the teaching of the scriptures. You're either obeying sin. When we sin, when we give in to sin, we stir up desires within ourselves. And now we want to progress in that sin. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles with me to um, John chapter 8, verse 31, because Christ brings this point out. Galatians, while you're going there, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. It's paradoxical, right? What does it mean? It means we are to die to ourselves, and Jesus Christ is to live through us and make us and shape us into the person that he wants us to be. 
In that sense, we're servants of Jesus Christ. Because in our flesh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, and I'm paraphrasing, but in our flesh dwells no good thing. There's nothing good in our flesh. It's rebellious. It's disobedient. And our flesh fights and wars against the work the Spirit of God wants to do in us. Again, Galatians 5, 16 and following. Now, Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 is arguing. He's in a debate with the religious leaders. And the gloves have come off because they're now really going at it. And Christ hits them with something that they're not very happy with. Now, look what it says here. John 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and this truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, let me just stop there for a second. He's speaking to those who professed to believe in him, number one. Doesn't mean they are believers. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, there is a multitude of religious leaders around them. So this is going back and forth. Now, look at verse 33, and I want to show you how national pride blinds. I lived in Ireland for 19 years, and we had people from all walks of life and many different nations immigrating into Ireland. And it's amazing to me how much national pride blinds us of the truth. Now look what he says here. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. What a shocking statement. In 722 BC, about 700 and some years prior to this, they went into the bondage of the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes. In 586 BC, they are in bondage to the Babylonians. And they really never got their freedom. There is a Persian Empire, there is a Greek Empire, and at the present moment, they are under bondage to the Romans. So you see this national pride coming out, but that's not what Jesus was speaking of. Now, Jesus says in verse 34, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The moment we commit sin, and I'll show you this in a minute from James chapter 1 verse 15, the desire of our flesh is to continue and continue and continue and continue to sin until it destroys us. Literally, all you can do is look at the life of Saul. The sin of envy and jealousy, and it led to destruction after destruction after destruction. Never repented of his sin. Now, I don't think he was a believer, but nonetheless, he never repented of his sin, and it took hold of him. Now, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What does that mean? It means that when we get saved, we now are free from the bondage of sin. 
that holds us captive. It doesn't mean we will be free, but it means we have the tools to become free. We can break the habitual habit and constant reminder of sin. We can break through that. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be pornography, it could be lying, it could be anger, and you can go on and on and on. But God now gives us the abilities, and God gives us the tools, and God gives us the desire to break free from sin. And it's a progress called, called progressive sanctification. Now, I want you to go to James chapter 1, again, to bring this truth out. So when we get saved... And the person that is unsaved, because they have a conscience, is able in one sense to be freed uh, from strong, habitual bondage of sins, but never really free from sin to serve Christ. The freedom comes from the person who gets saved. To live for God, to deny thy flesh, to be in union with Christ, to abide in Christ. But that freedom... It's not automatic. There's a battle that takes place. Now, James chapter 1, verse 15. And so when Paul was writing in Philippians 1 that they're slaves of Christ, that's a good thing. Because Christ makes us free. You see, Christ, when we yield to him, we have the fruit of the spirits, which is love, which is peace, which is kindness, which is long-suffering. And we can live a peaceful, which is joy, a peaceful life full of joy. That's what yielding to Christ is. In James chapter 1, verse 15, we can go to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is drawn each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, God doesn't tempt us to sin. God allows trials in our lives, but that's only to bring them close to him. Sin comes across our past, and the reason we sin is because there is a desire within us to do that sin. And for that moment, we somehow have been deceived to think that that sin will give me more pleasure than yielding to God. Now look what happens in verse 15. Because the idea there is that when we sin, we are to quickly repent of that sin so that the consequences are minimal. Because if we don't confess that sin, look at the path it wants to take us. Look at verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, the idea when sin runs its course, or when what sin's goal is to bring forth death. Sin's goal is to bring forth death. That's the idea. Sin wants to destroy you, and sin wants to destroy others around you, and again, you can see that in the life of Saul. And unfortunately, you can see it in the life of David, who is a man after God's own heart. He sinned. He looked. He lusted. He probably wasn't right before that. Because that's how it works with sin. It builds up. And then the lust. And then the action. 
and then the murder of progress. Sin wants to destroy us. That's what ticks inside of us. That's why the Puritans and the Reformers of years ago were so strong against and so strong in, in their teaching of pursuing God and pursuing Christ to purify us of that sin. And so the church is to be a light. And how are we a light? We're a light by walking with Christ. We're fighting against sin first. And when we're fighting against sin first, we can be used of God. Now, let me show you. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is a direct correlation between our sanctification, our abiding in Christ, our devotion to God, and our usefulness by Him in this world. There is a direct correlation. And the Reformers and the Puritans understood that. Now, 2 Timothy, if I remember this passage correctly, because it kind of just popped in my head, but I think I got it. Chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ, now look at it, depart from iniquity. Run from it. Just like Joseph, when Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Sin is not to be played with. It is to be forsaken. It is to be smashed and fled from. Now, look what he says. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Best analogy I can make, you can have uh, dishes that you can buy at Walmart for like two or three bucks and cheap silverware and you use that every day. But then when there's a special occasion like Thanksgiving or Christmas, you bring out the expensive dishes and silverware. So there's some for honor, there's some for dishonor. What's God saying? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from what? Verse 19, right? From iniquity. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, now look at this, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Right? On one hand, we can be busy, busy, busy like the church at Ephesus, who was busy. Right? America is busy. We're busy for God. And God says, you left your first love. What you're doing is, is futile right now. Because you're not devoted to me. You're not plugged into me. You're not spending time with me. Think about Mary and Martha. Mary has chosen the good part, which won't be taken away from her. It's on with Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ said in the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the last thing, the last thing he said is, is, is go into the world. But prior to that, he said, don't go yet. You've got to wait for the, the Holy Spirit. And you're not plugged into the Holy Spirit if we're not yielded to Christ. 
We can go out in our own strength, and it's futile. It's a waste of time. That's why Jonathan Edwards said that no man who lives close to God lives in vain. Though he may not be directly ministering to someone, his life gives off a fragrance and a power unknown to him. And that's what God's looking for. So the church is to be a light. And that light comes from recognizing that we are servants of Christ. And we are to die to self and yield to his lordship. And then we will be that light, as stated here in 2 Timothy. Now, number three, leaders are given to help the church grow. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. You see he's writing that to the church, by the way. Who are in Philippi with the beast bishops and deacons. We'll talk about that in a second. Grace you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaders are given to help the church grow. Now, we think often of a bishop, and you think of somebody with one of those, you know, big hats, cone-shaped hats, and they're a bishop over uh, so many denominations or so many churches in the, within the denomination or the fellowship. That's not what this word means. And I'll show you. Go, go, to, go to 1 Peter um, chapter 5 for a second. 1 Peter chapter 5. The bishop, the pastor, and the elder refers to the same person. Okay? The bishop just meant pastor. You could replace it. Look at, look at 1 Peter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's exhorting the elders. In other words, he's... He's addressing the elders. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Poinumen in the Greek. That's where we get from pastor. Elder, you shepherd or you pastor the flock of God. And by the way, the word pastor also can mean to feed, which is the primary responsibility. To feed the flock, to speak with the word. Of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. That's the same Greek word as bishop. Okay? So the elder, pastor, and bishop refer to the same person. It just shows you what the, I'm going to say, the, the job description or the role of the pastor is. He's to feed the sheep, he's to oversee the sheep, and he's to be a person of uh, spiritual maturity and and I believe there could be a plurality of pastors I served on a staff or that could be in this case here is is sometimes there can be a lay pastor which differentiates from somebody that's called into to full-time ministry but when he's writing to the bishop he's not writing to someone over a bunch of churches it's the local church God's focused on so leader leaders are to help the church they are given by God 
to help the church grow. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's see this as well. Ephesians chapter 4. Why is God given a pastor? And what is our then, our response? Because God gives a pastor to the church, why does he give it? And how should that affect me? What is my role in the church? Well, there's a lot of things we can say, but let's focus on this right now. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. Now, this is talking about um, God giving to the church these gifts. And apostles were a gift to the church, but apostles don't exist today. The apostolic age went out with the last apostle, which was John. Okay? And if you would go to Acts chapter 1, you will see that one of one of the qualifications to be apostle is you had to see the risen Christ. That's why Matthias was qualified to be a, an apostle. Those that believe in apostles today are not rightly dividing the word of God. The apostles have ended. There's only 12. And that's what the scriptures in, in, the, in the New Testament teach as well. So the apostolic age uh, and, and the, the sign gifts that went along with that have ended after, after John um, died, penned the New, end of the New Testament 95 AD. Some prophets. Well, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, I think verse 22, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that should tell you something right there. You don't keep building foundations. The prophet was an office in the Old Testament that ended in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, is a good passage to, to, to look at. But also the Ephesians uh, 2. So the apostle doesn't exist, and the prophet doesn't exist. The evangelist, I think, is the church planner, okay, which I was involved with. And then the pastor and teacher, which means it's actually the same person in the Greek. It refers to the same person. So the church has the pastor and teacher. Why? Why is the pastor given? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The pastor is to teach from the word of God, which equips the saints to carry on the ministry. And it also is to edify or build up or strengthen the body of Christ. And because of lack of time, I won't read through that same passage, but you'll see that's critical in the church. Is solid biblical teaching. In Titus, the book of Titus, the message from Paul to Titus, you read through those three chapters, was you go in there and you preach solid doctrine to sort out the problems, because there's a lot of problems in the church. So there's a teaching of the word of God that strengthens the believer and strengthens the church. And I believe from the little bit of time I've been here, I believe you've received that think this is a solid church because I believe you received solid teaching and uh, and we praise God for that. Now the other thing we want to see again is Acts chapter 6 I think this is important because if again if the word of God I tell I tell people when they when they used to come when people came to my church and they're testing the church out I would say you stay here for six months and be faithful and see what the Word of God will do in your life. You come, you listen, and you apply that book and apply what we're teaching and see what it does. And I had more than one person come back and say, 
God is changing. It's important to be under the ministry of the Word of God. Now, let me show you how important. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when a number of disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists, remember, Hellenism was a, a great influence in the, in the Bible days because of the Greek empire that influenced like the known world uh, the known world and so there are people who had more of like a a, a gentile um greek background and then those from the judah uh like a jewish background and the hellenists you know and you can imagine there's there's kind of like a cultural difference in the church and the hellenists and we saw that in Ireland with the protestants and the catholics you could clearly see it but the hellenists were saying like oh well you favor the jews because the distribution, there would be things being distributed to them, but not to us. Now, that probably wasn't the case, but they felt that way. Okay? And then he says this. And then the twelve, some of the multitude of the disciples said, It is not, now look at this. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, at that time, again, it was a unique situation with the apostles, a unique situation in, in the church's life. But I want you to see that the apostles, one of their primary ministries that transferred that over to the pastor, is to minister the word of God. So much so that they said, listen, we understand this is a problem and you're trying to meet their physical needs. But, you know, we've got to be at our studying and digging into the word of God and praying because it's so vitally important that the word of God is ministered to you appropriately. Now, can you imagine in that situation? People might say, oh, they can't get out of their, their office to come and help out. Now, of course, they, sh they were doing that and they should do that. But they set as a priority to be in God's Word. And that's why deacons were selected. Deacons were there to help in those tasks to free up the pastor so he would have the time to be in God's Word and to then speak and minister the word of God to you to help you grow. Which means again, an important part for you, for your family, and for your community as you to be under the teaching of the word of God to help us grow. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, let the man who would hear God speak, read the Holy Scriptures. I want to know what God says. Read the Bible. That's how you know. That's what Martin Luther said. Early had said in his lectures on Genesis, the Holy Spirit himself and God, the creator of all things, is the author of this book. He also said the word of God that saves and sanctifies from generation to generation is preserved in a book and therefore at the heart of every pastor's work is book work. Call it reading, meditation, reflection, study, exegesis, or whatever you will. A large and central part of the work is to wrestle God's meaning from a book and proclaim it in the power of the Spirit. That's what God wants. That brings a healthy church. And if this church 
is to move forward and make an impact in this community. We need the power of God. Because that's our only hope. And it's our only hope. Our country, I cannot get over the difference of our country between the time we left in 2000 and returned in 2019. How quickly it has, it has fallen away from the things of God. And everybody knows the gospel. They can, they can say it before you even present it. So what's going to give them a hunger for God? What's going to open their eyes? It's the power of God. It is the power of God. A people that are set apart and sanctified to God. We need to be a people that are reading our Bible, that are under the Bible, that are allowing the Spirit of God and the Word of God to change us and to be a light, and eventually a people that come together in prayer, even if that's once a month, to pray and beg God. So that's the only way we're going to make a difference. I'm absolutely 100% convinced of that. It's not going to be a method. It's not going to be a technique. It's not a personality. It is the power of God. And there are many churches that have many people in them, but that doesn't matter because Jesus had a great multitude that followed him. Who many of them turned away. And they were professors. That professed Christ. Didn't have them here. And so the church is dear to the heart of God. The church is God's program. God uses the church to bring about his fulfillment. To glorify his name, to bring people to Christ, to do good, to be a light, to be a good testimony in the community. God does it. And I am basically out of time, but I want you to go back to Philippians and we'll wrap it up here. Chapter 4. And again, next week we won't get back. So we'll, we'll move past two verses. The only reason I mentioned chapter or verse 2 is because that's Paul's introduction to every one of his epistles. And, and the thing that, that's commonplace in all of his epistles is that every epistle that Paul wrote was written to the local church. And even the epistle that was written to Timothy was written about the local church. And Timothy was probably the pastor of the church of Ephesus. That's what most people think. So God's program in the New Testament, again, is the local church. And the Great Commission is filled in the local church. Did you know that? The fulfillment of the Great Commission is the local church. It is. Evangelize. The world, one of the things mentioned in the Great Commission, baptize, disciple, and teach. That was fulfilled in church planning. The church, Acts chapter 1, there's a church that was formed in Jerusalem. And that's the focus all the way through Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 8, the church, the church at Jerusalem was persecuted. And the church fled and was scattered. Went through Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. 
the people, when they proclaim the gospel, the focus is on the church, Acts 13, 1, of Antioch. The church of Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas to do what? They preached the gospel, and what did they do? They planted churches, and the epistles are written to the churches. And even in Revelation 2 and 3, we see that each church is autonomous. That means there's not a denomination. Each local church was accountable to Jesus Christ. God's plan is the church. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, and I apologize. I know today's message is a little long, and I'll, I'll make sure I reel it in next time. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Which, boom, nails it. The church Paul was writing to, not churches, sometimes he does that like in Galatians, he was writing to the church at Philippi, which was his practice. Because the church is dear to the heart of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, trust and pray that you will take your word and use it as you see fit. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the leadership. Thank you for the love they have showed us already with the hard work, especially in the parsonage. Thank you, Lord, for um, you bringing us together. And we look for it. Uh, in the near future, when we move up here, Lord, and we look forward to you using this church to be a light in this community and beyond. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. We appreciate your support, and we hope you have a God-blessed day.